Hi again, everybody, and welcome to the Tennis Worthy Podcast presented by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber, and this week, we've got a fun one for you. We are talking with a legendary player turned commentator, actor, producer, humanitarian, and so much more, Vijay Amartraj. My mother had always said that the word can't never existed in our home. It was the word won't. We were the first brothers to play Davis Cup one and two singles for a country since the Renshaws in the 1800s. So those were unique moments. All of a sudden, my first major motion picture was a Bond picture. To children, you have to dream big. You have to shoot for the stars and you have to make sure that your feet are still firmly planted on the ground. Vijay's story is an extraordinary one in that he struggled mightily with health issues as a child, but he persevered to become one of India's most accomplished tennis players. His competitive career saw him notch big wins over the likes of McEnroe and Borg and Laver, just to name a few. And Vijay didn't slow down in retirement either. Rather, he went on to work with the United Nations, UNICEF, and was the recipient of the Padma Shri, India's highest civilian honor. And if that weren't enough, you won't want to miss hearing how he ended up playing at Wimbledon in the morning and found himself at Pinewood Studios in the afternoon auditioning for a role in a James Bond film. I leave you now with host Chris Bowers and the great Vijay Amritraj. Chris, take it away. Vijay Amritraj, thank you for joining us on the Tennis Worthy podcast. As you were growing up in India, getting into tennis, what sort of background did you come from? I think the uh, most important part of it was the fact that my parents were two quite ordinary people. My father was in the government service working for the Southern Railways. My mother was a uh, wonderful woman. I can talk about her all day long. Um, but uh, we grew up in a wonderful above average family, I would say, where the big question was my health at the, in my early years. And, uh, and that was what I struggled with pretty much all through my early years with uh, severe asthma. And uh, was in and out of hospital and uh, had bouts of IV in me and uh, my mother helping me with schoolwork and going and sitting in class for me on the odd occasion and coming and teaching me in school, in, in the hospital rather, and, uh, and then begging the teachers to allow me to do the exams, and, uh, which I very rarely passed. So it was a, it was a real learning curve at, at a very young age. And, uh, what sort I of age are we mother, talking about? Uh, we're talking about from the time I was born till about 10. And uh, it was more a question of uh, my mother and father not wanting me to be left behind. And so when did tennis come into this? So finally, the doctors advised that I should play an outdoor sport to expand my lungs, which were too close together, apparently. That's why my breathing capacity was, was less, and I had the severe case of asthma, and I couldn't go to high-altitude places and things like that. And so they suggested uh, an outdoor sport. The sport of my family was tennis, and Anand, my older brother, was already playing tennis. And so they got me into it, but I couldn't... I played for a minute and sat for five minutes and played for two minutes and sat for ten minutes, one of those things, and I couldn't run from here to there properly. And so my mother took it upon herself to actually drive the car by the side of me to, as I ran, 10 yards, 50 yards, 100 yards, and eventually, eventually I ran 8, 10 miles a day. 
So you built up your lung capacity through a mixture of running and playing tennis? Mainly tennis. It was entirely the sport that actually gave me back my health. And to be able to then eventually get to where I did was simply uh, not just a miracle, uh, but a, uh, a challenge to my parents and to myself, I suppose, but more to them, uh, especially my mom, to make me into something that uh, seemed like a complete long shot. Did your elder brother Anand and your younger brother Ashok, did they have any similar breathing problems? I mean, fortunately, none whatsoever. My older brother actually was a, pretty much a photogenius. He would, he, would, he would always come first in class and, you know, he would look at a piece of paper and tell you the paper and, and uh, we always make a big joke of it because uh, if he came in second in class, it, it was, uh, the house was a morgue. And uh, if I passed an exam, my mother handed out sweets to everyone. So it was one of those things. And I always used to tease my parents afterwards that if you didn't have me, you'd think being parenting, parenting would be easy. But it isn't. We all know that. But uh, I, I do believe that uh, clearly it's 98% their effort anyway that I did, ended up doing what I did. But I'm, I, it's, it's very easy for me to say this. My greatest talent was being born to the right parents. At what point did you get the sense that you would be a bit special at tennis? I think it interestingly came fairly early uh, before my 14th birthday. Uh, I was still in high school, of course, and uh, ended up winning my first major college tournament where in the final, in the month of May in southern India, you're playing someone who's 19 years old, and I was not, it was before my 14th birthday, and uh, after losing the first two sets, I ended up winning in five through cramps and all at 13 and a half. So you're playing best of five at 13 and a half? In the final, exactly. What sort of weather conditions? Uh, um, 95 degrees in the shade and uh, 95% humidity and cramps back and forth for both of us. And uh, uh, it, it was the most trying experience at the time. But my mother had always said that uh, the word can't never existed in our home. It was the word won't. And uh, she had to also two near-fatal accidents that she came through at that in the, in the 30s, uh, that uh, monumental recovery only because of her. And the only thing she was focused on was to make sure that uh, I was able to play. Did the breathing difficulties ever come back, or once you built up your lung capacity, was that then fully behind you? It was behind me most of the time till I went to some high-altitude places. I played in Tehran, for example, uh, in, the, in the 70s. And uh, eventually, you know, the ATP used to have a hard designation in those days to send a player um, who was in the top 20 to some place where they could go save a tournament because the local guy was, was in the top 20, and so they needed a, another guy to come in there and play in the same tournament. So one year I was due to play San Francisco, and the ATP moved me to Mexico City. And I tried to explain to them that I can't go to these high-altitude places. And uh, they had no other choice but to send me there. So they sent Anand and me there. And I woke up in the morning after my first night in Mexico City, and the entire pillow was red because I'd been bleeding through the nose. But then again, when I called mom, you know, she said, uh, they sent you there, and uh, there's no question of you can't. And I ended up beating Ramirez in the final. And was that then just a case of saying, I must just strengthen my body and I will eventually come through this? Or were you actually at major risk of some, something quite serious? There were several times that when that came about, especially in Davis Cup. 
And uh, the, the interesting thing was that's when uh, you come back to my early years of, of childhood, of being ill and my mother saying I'm going to be this and I'm going to be that and I'm lying in a hospital bed with an IV in me and she's telling me, oh, you're going to be the best that India's had in the open era and, and all of this. And, and, you know, it's hard to comprehend, obviously, at the time. But when you come to a fork in the road, there are, and this happens happened to me very regularly in matches, especially in Davis Cup, where the one to the left says you can continue to remain good, but then the one to the right says you have the potential to be great. And then which one would you choose? And so, obviously, I would say things to my manager and a doctor at the time, you know, make sure the ambulance is close by and the and the oxygen tank is courtside. The only way I'm coming off the court is on a stretcher. Because you were going for the I want to be great Correct. route. Yeah. The world has changed since the early 70s when you were making it as a professional. Were you disadvantaged by the fact that you came from India? Uh, not at all. As a matter of fact, uh, it was harder because all of the events were going to be in Europe and North America and at the time, and there were very, very few tournaments in, in our part of the world. And uh, they were starting to pick up, but there wasn't. And uh, if you had to get better after being number one in India or even number one in Asia, which I was for 14, 15 years, you had to go to Southern California or to Florida in those days. Now, of course, it seems to be Barcelona, <laughs> but I did. We ended up going to Southern California and, and getting better. Jimmy lived there, and the whole bunch of guys lived in uh, Southern Cal who were all unbelievable tennis players at the time. So that's what we ended up doing for me to be able to have a run at the US Open in 73 and 74. Where did your belief in your own ability come from? Was it just your mother and the there is no such word as can't, or is there some inner strength which you developed over time? I think it had to have come somewhere along the line because it was one of those things where I took my chances on the tennis court and I was very aggressive and uh, I was conservative off of it. You know, coming from the southern part of India, you tend to be very, very, very conservative. You don't take chances with your money, you don't take chances with your family, you don't take chances with your job. And all of a sudden, I'm playing a sport, earning money from it. But prior to that, the question to me always was, and to my parents, yes, you play tennis, what do you do for a living? And so I was able to only answer that question when I won my first tournament. So then it became, I became conscious of the fact that it was a bigger aspect than just winning tennis matches for me. It was more a question of being able to represent India on the world stage. And I think at the time, as uh, people were moving from our parts of the world to North America for a better life and a better lifestyle and so on, there were lots of uh, uh, people migrating to different parts of Europe and, and North America for that similar purpose. And the only, only one they could see on TV was me. And uh, it, it was interesting to have that on your shoulders because every tournament I went, they came from all corners of the city and state to watch me play. And was there a sense that your biggest service was playing for India as opposed to playing for yourself at tournaments? It always was uh, uh, India on my back. It never was anything otherwise. And frankly speaking, Wimbledon and Davis Cup, uh, I, I never thought of myself as Vijay ever. It was always playing for India uh, in both those events. The rest of it, yes, it was a professional tour for me to end up making a good chunk of change, which I did. And I was very fortunate to have played as long as I did. But to this day, wherever I would live, 
I would always be Indian. I, I still carry an Indian passport. I, I, I travel around the world only, only as an Indian. And I think one look at me and you'll always think of India. So it doesn't matter where I end up living for that matter. So I just feel very strongly connected to it. And having played Davis Cup for nearly 20 years, it just, it's just that thing is so strongly planted in my, in my heart and in my brain. Ever wonder how tennis balls were packaged in the early 1900s? Or what was fashionable on the court in 1881? How about the rackets used by Jimmy Connors or Billie Jean King? All of that and more can be found in the International Tennis Hall of Fame's digital exhibits. The award-winning digital exhibits take you through tennis's most interesting history to the boundaries broken by black players to pave the way for today's stars. To view the digital exhibits, visit tennisfame.com slash digital exhibits. When you shop at tennisfame.com, you're supporting the International Tennis Hall of Fame's mission to preserve tennis history, celebrate its greatest champions, and inspire tennis fans around the world. The shop is stocked with the best gifts for the tennis fan in your life, from performance fila apparel, hats, tees, and more. Shop now at shoptennisfame.com. Let's send you back now to Chris Bowers for more of his fascinating conversation with Vijay Amritraj. If we can go back to the year 1974, the year you turned 21, you beat a, a young Swede called Bjorn Borg at the US Open, you got to the quarterfinals, and you helped steer India to the Davis Cup final, the first final which didn't include any of the Grand Slam nations in the 74-year history of the competition. And yet you didn't play that match because India refused to play apartheid South Africa. What are your recollections of that momentous second half of 74? A couple of things come to mind, and I spoke about it at the UN many years later. And the issues were not as simple as they seemed on paper. For an athlete of 20, 21 years of age, to put your country's name on the Davis Cup would have been a complete dream come true. That was what we were playing the game for. And we were playing a country in the final that we certainly could have won. And they also were willing to play us anywhere in the world. It didn't have to be South Africa. They had home, home choice and they were willing to play us anywhere as well. Now, the government of India chose to default a match because of obvious reasons. People, 15 million people, were living as they shouldn't. And uh, they made the right call from a human perspective. From an athlete's perspective, we were disappointed we were not given the opportunity to win. And to this day, I feel exactly the same way. And it's incredible because had we played and had we won, would it have made it any better for us? It wouldn't have made it any better for the 15 million who were not living like us. So do you think in retrospect the decision was wrong, even though you fully understand where it came from? Well, I al I've always felt that governmental decisions exceed uh, and uh, super uh, uh, imposed over any other of the divisions that are making their decisions, whether it's the tech business, whether it's a sports business, whether it's entertainment business, all of it uh, really come from government policy. And government policy would come first because when we elect them, they're always making the call on behalf of all people for the, for the good of the world. That's the way we elect people. So I think from a sporting perspective, yes, it would have been great to have played that match simply because I think we could have won. But that's a win-loss situation. And, uh, and all of the South African players were good friends of ours as well. But 
when we look at it from a government perspective and a human perspective, it was the right call. Where were you when you heard the decision that the Davis Cup final was off? Strangely, we were all playing the Stockholm Open in, in Sweden at Kunlinga Tennis Hall and along with the South Africans. And we were all looked over the Herald Tribune together. And uh, it was amazing that we had to see it together and realise we were not going to play the match. What's the most memorable moment in your whole career as a tennis player? Because I know you've had a career as an actor and as a coach as well, and a broadcaster. Chris, there were tons of them, but uh, one of the, the highlights came in... Uh, one, of course, was getting to the final in 74 in Davis Cup. Two was uh, I had to wait 13 years before we faced a similar situation with, uh, with Israel at the time in 87 after we beat Argentina when we were not expected to and they beat Czechoslovakia when they were not expected to and we were due to play each other in India and India defaulted the match because we didn't have full diplomatic ties with Israel and I was able to help by meeting our Prime Minister at the time and uh, he eventually reversed the call we ended up beating Israel and then we went down to Sydney and we beat Australia in Sydney and got to the final 13 years later losing to Sweden in Gothenburg but it was a very special moment for us to be able to have overcome that 13-year sort of uh, <laughs> wait that we had to go through, uh, putting India in the final of the Davis Cup both times in the open era. And I was the one who was able to do that uh, for the country with a, with a spectacular team. So those were very much of highlight from, a, from my national perspective and country's perspective. And uh, obviously beating Labour at the U.S. Open in 73. Uh, first time, I think, for an Indian to be on American television was quite a, uh, quite unique. Uh, ended up beating Beyond the next year in 74, playing to a couple of great matches uh, against Connors in the centre court at Wimbledon and Beyond in court, the old court one. I think there were lots of events around the world where Indians showed up in hundreds and hundreds in different parts of the world to be able to cheer someone on they didn't know. And because I was from home. You mentioned a match against Borg at Wimbledon and you led him by two sets to one, four one in the fourth and ended up on the wrong side. And yet, did you perhaps gain as much for the profile of tennis in India through a match like that, win or lose, than if you'd won it in, say, four sets? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, I have beaten uh, Bjorn and, uh, and Jimmy and McEnroe. And uh, the, the wins are fantastic. Everyone remembers them. They talk about it to this day. But again, when you play those kinds of matches, win or lose, the country is so in your corner. Uh, the passion is so strong for you to win that they talk about it 30, 40 years later. And at airports, at restaurants, and they remember where they were when I played those matches. And, and, I, and, and when they actually start to get difficult with me because they say, how could you lose this? How could you have done that? How could you, have, you know, it, it kind of, and friends always say to me, oh, what did you say to them? Did you, did you say any, any, did you retort? Did you say anything? And I said, no, because they had the same passion I did. I just happened to be the one playing. Do you think that that passion is as big now as it should be in India? I mean, you're obviously playing second fiddle to cricket in, in terms of the passions of the country, but do you think you've established tennis, a legacy that's been taken on by people like Leander Pace, uh, Mahesh Bhupati, Sanya Mirza, in a way that really has made tennis a top-level serious sport in India? 
I think this, the short answer is no, because we haven't had anyone play in the top notch of singles for a long, long time. And uh, the last male to play on the centre court at Wimbledon, uh, strangely, is still me. And uh, in singles, in singles, that's a, that's a that's a terrible thing to exist, to be honest. And uh, I just feel that they need someone to get behind. And uh, it's very easy to get behind cricket because we have a, a, a strong cricket team. Uh, cricket is in the blood. They play uh, all these various matches where they are good enough to win. And uh, I think badminton has done a much better job in India than any other sport because the boys and girls have done remarkably well. For example, for the first time ever, India won the Thomas Cup, which is the men's badminton championships and beating the all-time great Indonesians in the finals. So I think when you, when you look at a country, they need to hang their hat on someone in mano a mano and be able to do that on a regular basis because they know you're competing with the best at the highest level on a daily basis. Do you feel that if there was a young Indian tennis player showing the kind of promise that would make them let's say top 50, not necessarily Grand Slam champion, but top 50, so they might get a place on the centre court at Wimbledon. Would they have the opportunities, the infrastructure to do that from India or would they have to leave and go to America? I don't think today there is any excuse. We have, honestly, have everything. We have sponsorships. There is, uh, there's obviously tons of uh, money that's going into sports sponsorships. The government has come up with spectacular programs called CSR and I think there's a great opportunity for television. Uh, the Television carries all the major sporting events from around the world. There's nothing that you can't see, nothing that you don't know what it's going to look like. When we traveled, we flew blind. You didn't know what Wimbledon looked like. You didn't know what London looked like. You didn't know really how far it was till you made four stops before you could get here. And, and there were so many things that my parents didn't know that they were flying blind. Today you know every single thing. And you also know that there's the availability of coaches from different parts of the world. You have coaching domestically. You have tons of facilities available, irrespective of whether you did it in India or a nearby country or a faraway country. You know where to go. You know what to do. And you have sponsorships available. I think there is a, a, a demand, a need to have more athletes from our country putting India on the world stage. You said that in those days you were flying blind. I mean, it was very much the early days of professional tennis. You played in the first decade after open tennis came in. Do you feel you helped shape the modern tennis world by being around in that first decade? Yes, I would like to think so. And I think, uh, when I say I like to think so, I think it was probably more than I could have even imagined because when Anand and I came on the tour in the 70s, we were, there was no one like us. And uh, the only one who actually played world-class tennis at the time, who was of a different color, was the great Arthur Ashe. And of course, he won Wimbledon in 75. But from our part of the world, from Asia, to have two guys like us make the world stage and me competing at the highest levels with everyone from 72, 73 onwards and then putting in the final of the Davis Cup in 74. That was something that uh, had to turn the tables upside down in a sport that was predominantly white. Your elder brother, who was the better player than you in the early days, ends up as your doubles partner. How did you get on in those years? 
Were you always very close or did you uh, have some, uh, some fiery moments? The strange thing is, <laughs> he was very conservative on the court and I was very aggressive on the court. He was a little bit more aggressive off the court. I was conservative off the court. <laughs> so, and uh, we look back at our, our own lifestyles together and the fact that we were able to play on the tour for such a long time together. And I can't honestly remember one big fight that we've had. You know, and I don't say that in a, either in a positive way or a negative way, but it, was, it is what it is. And uh, we talk about it even yesterday, we, you know, we were discussing that with the, with the boys, with our sons. And, you know, it's interesting to, to think that. And uh, how did we get along on the tennis court? Well, he played one way, I played another way. And perhaps that's why we, we, we kind of gelled well together. You know, could we have won more? Probably. Could we have won less? For sure. But uh, we were the first brothers to play Davis Cup one and two singles for a country since the Renshaws in the 1800s. So those were unique moments. And how did your parents feel about that? I think it was tough for my dad to get his jacket on because his, his, his chest was swelling with pride with the fact that his sons were going to be playing one and two for the country. Still a lot of pressure on some one family to carry that many people in, through a Davis Cup match. But uh, we did get to the final of the Davis Cup in 74. But I think my parents felt the most important thing of it, of the entire fact that we would play the tour was we didn't play the Australian Open because it came during Christmas time in those days and we were always home for Christmas. Do you regret that now in terms of tennis? No, because again, for us, uh, uh, family came ahead of everything else as does the human element of things and for me, it has always been that. Oh, sure, could I have won the Australian Open? Perhaps, you know, we've had uh, uh, players like Edmondson win the Australian Open. Creek and Lloyd have been in the final. I think there was an opportunity, yes, because less players played it in those days. But uh, looking back, did we do the right thing? Oh, by a long shot. When your career came to an end, you stayed in tennis as a broadcaster, did a bit of coaching, but you also were an actor. The, the part that most people in the, in the Western world know is your part as a character called VJ in Octopussy, where you actually were able to use your tennis racket. How did that come about? <laughs> yes. Actually, I was picked off the centre court at Wimbledon after my Connors match in, uh, in 81. Um, the late Cubby Broccoli, the producer of the Bond pictures, and his wonderful daughter, who's a good friend of mine now, uh, Barbara, uh, asked me to have tea, and they said that, uh, listen, we're doing this picture, we've tested over 100 actors for the role, we haven't come up with the right person. You know, would you mind doing a screen test? We'd love to try you out. And uh, I said, you know what, let me do it as a laugh. Very few people can say they worked at Pinewood in the morning and played at Wimbledon in the afternoon. You know, so I said, okay, let me give it a go. And, and the next thing they said was, listen, you're, you're perfect for it. We'd like to sign you for 14 weeks. And so all of a sudden, my first major motion picture was a Bond picture. And uh, I said, listen, I'm still playing on the tour. So they let me off to work for three weeks and go off and play four tournaments and come back and do three weeks. And I was concerned about working all my scenes with the great Roger Moore, whom I had never met. And the next thing I know, you know, he walks up to me on the first day of uh, shooting and said how thrilled he is that I had accepted to be with them in the picture. Well, you know, he was a hobby tennis player. He was. Very passionate. He loved his tennis. And, uh, and then, of course, we got along ex exceedingly well. Lovely, lovely man. Just the most gentle and funniest guys I've ever met. And then we ended up working at the UN together because he... 
he took over from the late Audrey Hepburn as a UNICEF global ambassador, and I was appointed by Kofi Annan as a messenger of peace. So we ended up working together post the picture as well, and we became really good friends. And you had a line in the film about... You were an MI6 yes. agent, and yet uh, you talked about, oh, it's improved my back end. <laughs> yes, which, by the way, Roger threw in. He said that would make a funny line. And my name was also different in the picture, but Roger couldn't say it. So he said, listen, I only know him as VJ. Let's just call him VJ. Oh, so that came about as a result yes. of Roger not knowing... What was the name that you were supposed to Intervening. be? Intervening. It was a very long name. They wanted to give you a long Indian name and make it, you know, in your face kind of thing. And Roger said, listen, that's it. You know, I know him as VJ. He's going to be VJ. Did you ever play tennis with Roger? We did. We did play tennis. And, uh, but again, you know, it was just those moments uh, after just meeting him and sitting down with him and, and doing, doing things with him for so many years afterwards was what made uh, my friendship with him grow. You were given an award in India in 1983, the Padma Shri. For those of us who don't understand Indian national awards, what does this mean? Um, I would venture to say the Padma Awards in India are the highest award that they give to civilians. And uh, to compare it to the West, you know, the MBEs, the OBEs, uh, CBEs, knighthoods and things like that, they, they give depending on... Um, which one it is, but it's a recognition from the government of India for your services to the country and, and uh, uh, representing India well abroad, things like that. And so when they gave me that award, it was very special to me. Uh, it's, a, you know, whenever you're given a recognition of that nature, my first thought has always been, uh, do I deserve it? And I hope I've earned it. And uh, you then, it inspires you to continue to put your foot down on the pedal on um, making sure that uh, I'm doing right by my family and I'm doing right by the country. Without being immodest, do you ever doubt that you deserve it? I think so. I, uh, I mean, I certainly think so because, you know, what is it? You know, you're, you're trying to do the best you can. And so many people try to do the best they can, irrespective of what job you're in. You know, whether you're a broadcaster, whether you're a plumber, whether you're a home builder, whether, you know, anything that you do in the tech business, you know, you're trying to be the best that you can be for your family and for your company and, and uh, needless to say, other people that you work with and your colleagues. And uh, mine just happened to be a little bit more in the public eye than others. And so did I do well with it? Did I use it to have positive effect on three or four other people. And, and, and those things mean a lot to me. What sort of advice are you most comfortable giving young people in the tennis world? I think the first thing I would say to young parents is uh, when you have children, just remember that uh, you know one could be worse than the other or one better than the other. And just think of what the one was not as good thinks of and how he or she feels as they move forward in life and uh, that they don't have any chip on their shoulder or they don't have a health issue and just be able to spend a bit more time with them so that they can actually climb on your shoulders to get to where they need to and uh, that, that would be the first thing to young parents and to children uh, you have to dream big, you have to shoot for the stars and you have to make sure that your feet are still firmly planted on the ground. But 
the important thing is make sure that you have greatest of gratitude and respect for the people who put you there and how they're going to help you get to where you want to get to so that as and when you do get there that you will never forget it and what do you wish your legacy to be in terms of india's arguably greatest tennis player i think the first and most important thing is that i hope i've represented the family well and the country well secondly i feel that uh, i've hopefully been able to touch a few people's lives along the way in uh, in a positive way and have uh, a strong interaction that makes them feel closer to their families and their parents and we know we all have issues with uh, you know internally with parents with children with grandparents grandchildren and so on but you never ever get in the way to be able to have a regularly a, a morning and evening hug of everyone in your household uh, irrespective of whether you live with them or not that uh, there is that uh, there is that affection and friendship and closeness that never ever goes away within a family Vijay Amritraj thank you very much indeed for sharing your life story with us thank you chris enjoyed it a big thank you to Vijay for being with us today what a fascinating life and career he has had also be sure to give a listen to all the other intriguing conversations the tennis worthy podcast has to offer with insights from the likes of Leighton Hewitt Tracy Austin Yvonne Lendl and more and don't forget to subscribe rate and review us the tennis worthy podcast was created by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in association with the Tennis Radio Network I'm Brett Haber thanks for listening we'll see you next time